Second Corinthians chapter four, beginning in verse 13, it says, and since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you for all things are for your sakes. That grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Therefore, we don't lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen for the things which are seen are temporary But the things which are not seen are eternal. In the fourth chapter, we've looked at the ministry, trials, and now our attention turns to ministry triumphs. As a matter of fact, in ministry there is trial and testing, but there is also triumph and hope. Remember, part of the thing that we've been discussing is what keeps you going? What will cause you to wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to live one more day for Jesus. I am going to honor him and I'm going to serve him. And remember, we discovered that the presence of God sustains us in verse seven. The power of God supports us in verses eight and nine. Our willingness to die to self and live for Christ sustains us in verses 10, 11, and 12. The spirit of faith sustains us in verse 13. The hope of the resurrection sustains us in verse 14. Meeting the needs of others to the glory of God sustains us in verse 15. The inner man or woman, the inner person being renewed day by day, though the outward portion is perishing, the inward person is growing and maturing. That sustains us in verse 16. The future and eternal hope of glory keeps us going in verses 17 and 18. So we live in a world where we roughly divide the world into categories. Those who quit and those who persevere, those who give up and those who finish, those who abandon the faith, those who embrace and continue in the faith to the end. Those who are silent. Those who speak. And so Paul, again, is dividing ministry into effective ministry and ineffective ministry. But also what this seems to indicate is that it boils down to presence and perseverance. Because what is this race that we call the Christian life? Where is your life going? Where is your life headed? What, by the way, does the finish line look like? Paul's ministry, remember, began on the road to Damascus to arrest and torture and imprison Christians. And in the end, he finds himself arrested, deprived, (laughs) and eventually executed. Towards the end of his ministry, he wrote in 2 Timothy 4, 7, But I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. Paul's ministry was marked by God honoring realistic motives and then a commitment, enthusiastic determination to the things of God. Paul had every reason to experience doubt and dismay and discouragement and defeat. And yet by faith, Paul continues to preach the gospel. He continues to exercise faith because he knows a secret. He understands that beyond the suffering of this world. Lies unimaginable riches and eternal glory. Look again in verse 13. Our spirit of faith sustains us. It says, and since we have 
the same spirit of faith according to what is written. I believed and therefore I spoke. We also believe and therefore speak. You'll remember that Paul has addressed some of the paradoxes of ministry. How will we stand in adversity and difficulty? Paul has experienced pain, suffering, persecution, attack, pressed on every side by troubles, verse 8. Perplexed but not giving up, verse 8. Hunted down but not abandoned, verse 9. Knocked down but keep on going, verse 9. He shares the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in everyone that he meets. Paul is in constant danger so that Jesus will be obvious to everyone living in Greece and living in Corinth. So how do we keep from throwing in the towel? How do we keep on keeping on? Paul quotes Psalm 116 verse 10. By the way, the psalmist who is unnamed writes, I believed, therefore have I spoken. Here's the idea. If you go back to Psalm 116, 10, he trusted in the Lord. And therefore, what he said was the result of deep seated faith. If you're unfamiliar with Psalm 116, the pain, the afflictions and the persecutions, the heartache was such that the psalmist basically speaks. You know what we should do? We should just go there. Psalm 116. Just very quickly, I just want to point out a couple of things to you in, in its context. In Psalm 116, I'm going to begin at about verse 7. Return to your rest, O my soul. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you've delivered my soul from death and my eyes from tears and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed and therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits toward me? I'll take the cup of salvation. I'll call upon the name of the Lord. Paul is identifying with the statements. Like the psalmist, he's experienced pain, affliction, persecution. But the heartache didn't cause Paul to keep his mouth shut. In the midst of trial, in the midst of terror, in the midst of pain, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of illness, some people are tempted to keep their mouth shut. I just won't say anything. I won't talk about what's going on in my life. I won't talk about the pain and I won't talk about the problems and I won't talk about the difficulties where there's real faith. Let me be clear here. Where there is real faith, there must be an expression of that faith. When you really know the Lord and when you really love the Lord and when you really serve the Lord, you have something to say about it. True faith, God honoring faith, biblical faith. Is going to find an expression. And so when the person says to you, look, keep it to yourself. You need to be able to say to them, guess what? True faith, God honoring faith, biblical faith has to find a way of talking about it. And so. If we desire an increase of faith. We have to consent to its testings. Let me repeat that. Have you ever prayed, Lord, increase my faith? It happened amongst the disciples. Remember, Peter came to Jesus and he said, look, Lord, if someone really rubs me the wrong way, should I forgive them once or even twice, maybe as many as three times? And Jesus said, I'm saying not just seven times, but seven times 70. And Peter said, increase my faith. 
The moment that you say increase my faith, you have to consent to the testing. In other words, God's going to give you an opportunity to express that faith and experience that faith. Faith expects from God what is beyond expectation. It costs Abraham the yielding of his son. It costs Daniel to be cast into the lion's den. It costs Stephen death by stoning. It costs Peter a martyr's death. It costs Jesus his life and what? What will it cost you? What are you willing to give? Philip Hughes, in his little commentary on this section, wrote, It is particularly fitting that at this point Paul should quote Psalm 116 precisely because it's a hymn of thanksgiving for the deliverance from death. The cords of death compassed me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called on the name of Jehovah. I was brought low and he saved me. Thou hast delivered my soul from death, mine eyes from tears. We used to sing. You took me from death, my eyes from tears and delivered me from all my sinful years. I believed. Therefore, I spoke. Praise ye Jehovah. That's what Paul is saying. Threat of death, threat of trouble, threat of sorrow, tears. But God delivered the psalmist and God delivered Paul. And so he. He he makes the declaration. Someone said. If on Jesus Christ you trust, speak for him you surely must, though it humble to the dust. If you love him, say so. If on Jesus you believe and the Savior you receive, lest you should the Spirit grieve, don't delay, but say so. The idea being, let the redeemed of the Lord Say so. Why is that important to you? Because the ministry that triumphs begins with determination. You'll go forward. John Wesley wrote, how shall we conquer if we do not fight? And how will you deal with depression and disappointment and doubt and fear and darkness and wickedness and emptiness unless you're willing to go in a different direction? In the South, they say it isn't the size of the dog in the fight, but the size of the fight in the dog that determines which wins now. By saying that, I'm not supporting dogfighting in any way, shape, or form. So just make sure that gets on tape. No, are you quoting that because you're for dogfighting? No, I'm trying to make a point. Lincoln was great. Not because he lived in a log cabin, but because he left the log cabin. I went to the movies. I rarely do, but I went and saw the movie about Lincoln. And it was powerful. It reminded me of Lincoln's road to the White House. He failed in business in 1831. He was defeated for the legislature in 1832. Second failure in business in 1833. Suffered a nervous breakdown in 1836. Defeated for speaker in 1838. Defeated for elector in 1840. Defeated for Congress in 1843. Defeated for Congress again in 1848. Defeated for the Senate in 1855. Defeated for the Senate again in 1858. And then elected president of the United States in 1860. When I first thought about this, I I asked myself the question, did Lincoln have some sense of destiny and duty? And then I began to think about something else. Did those around Lincoln have a sense of his destiny and duty? The reason why this becomes the important part is because it could very well be that sometimes You forget that the person sitting next to you, the person sitting in front of you, the person sitting across from you, that God has this wonderful plan and purpose for that person. Some people are right on the verge of giving up. When I was working with the police department, I heard a story 
of a young man who was cleaning out his locker and he he got all of his books together and and he he put them in a backpack and then he put them in a box and um and then he was getting ready he was walking down the sidewalk and one of the bullies at school knocked the backpack off of him and knocked the books and and scattered them all over the place and one young man stood up for him and told the bully that he shouldn't be doing something like that. And he picked up the books and he put the books in the backpack. And the kid went on his way. Twenty years later, they met up. And the one kid said to the other kid, he said, how are you doing? He goes, you know what? You'll never know how you changed my life. You see, when I was cleaning out my locker... I was going to go home and I was going to kill myself. I was going to put a bullet in my head. And when that bully knocked over the books, it just reaffirmed the reality that I had no business being in this world. And you came along and you picked up those books and you made me reconsider my decision. You never really know how one act of kindness One act of encouragement can set in motion a series of circumstances where the fruition of a person's life come to be. Paul certainly does. Paul points to God's deliverance as the source of his determination. I want you to think about that because in the pain, in the problems and in the persecution, he cites as the source of his determination God's willingness to set him free and deliver him. You know, when you're suffering pain and sorrow. Let me encourage you that that's something that you can do as well. When the Jewish people were making their exit from Egypt, God brought about a great deliverance. And, you know, there's something pretty amazing that when you're standing up in front of a vast body of water and the Egyptians are behind you and then all of a sudden it opens wide in order to give you a way of escape. It changes you. And if you've ever experienced a miraculous deliverance, whether it's from sin, from hell. And by the way, if you've if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, you've experienced that deliverance from sin and hell. The Lord Jesus has wrought a great deliverance. Enthusiasm based on deliverance is a mighty, powerful motivator. And that's part of the point that Paul is making. And look at our hope of the resurrection in verse 14. Look what it says. Knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. What exactly have we been delivered from? The penalty of sin, the power of sin, the terror of death. And so Paul points to the resurrection of Jesus and our future resurrection as a source, as a motivator to stay the course, to continue to fight. And here's part of the point. He's saying, look, I've experienced the deliverance of Jesus. I'm going to keep going forward. Number two, Jesus rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, he also promised that I was going to rise from the dead. That's why it says in John's gospel, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me will never die determination based on deliverance determination based on a resurrection this is what motivates paul to continue to fight the good fight and to keep the faith can you imagine especially when you're in that dark place and that and you're in that empty place and you go I know that God is real and I know that Jesus is real and I know that he's going to bring me back to life. I know that I'm going to experience a resurrection from the dead. Chuck Swindoll writes, quote, death ends nothing. It merely closes the door on our earthly existence and opens the door of eternity. Knowing this with certainty keeps us on task. And what is that task? 
I'm going to honor him. I'm going to glorify him. I'm going to live for him. Now, Swindoll speaks not only of a literal resurrection, but the reality, the reality of the investment that we make in each other's lives. Because that's part of the point. Paul doesn't just simply say, God's going to bring me back to life. He also says, God's going to bring you back to life. And since God's going to bring me back to life, and since God's going to bring you back to life, he hints that when we die to ourselves and invest in the lives of others, we become resurrected in them. I want you to think about that for just a moment. Teachers are resurrected in their students. Pastors in their congregation. Parents in their children. You see, the things that are important, the things that are meaningful, the things that have real value and a glorious application. We have the opportunity to provide for one another. The fires of determination are fueled by such thoughts in that verse. Look what it says. He will present us With you. That's a powerful, powerful statement. Paul is making the statement. I am convinced. That I'm going to see you again. I am convinced that I'm going to come back to life. And I am convinced that you're going to come back to life. And I'm convinced that when we both come back to life, we are going to be able to evaluate those things that we did for one another as we prayed for one another, as we ministered to one another, as we encouraged one another, as we As I'm fond of saying, we divided the sorrow. We shared the joy. Paul was concerned about the glory of God and he was concerned about the blessing of his fellow men. And he came to the difficult conclusion. And this is part of the point that I think I want you to get. The more he suffered, the more the grace of God was made available to other people. You see, when you ask the question, why am I suffering? You rarely come to the conclusion, wow, I'm suffering so that the grace of God can be made available to others. Until, of course, the Lord reveals to you that 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 might be a reason. It may not be the only reason. But Paul understood that it was true in his life. The more he suffered, the more the grace of God was made available to others. The more he suffered hardship and pain and inconvenience, it became the perfect opportunity for him to present Christ and to present him over and over again, to preach the gospel and to do it over and over again, to tell the exciting story about Jesus and to do it over and over again. And the more that happened, the more people were saved and the more people were saved the more glory and honor and thanksgiving and praise ascended into heaven. And now it started to make sense to him. I'm experiencing pain. I'm experiencing persecution. I'm experiencing deprivation, suffering, isolation. And and there's got to be rhyme and reason. And even though I don't always know the rhyme and the reason, I know that there is a God And people are being saved and glory and honor and thanksgiving and praise is ascending into heaven. And so Paul, looking at verse 15, meeting the needs of others and the glory of God energizes us. Think about it. He's talking about not just the resurrection motivating him, not just the reality of the ministry, but needing the the needs of others. Look what it says in verse 15 for all things. All things are for your sakes. That grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. What is he saying? For all things are for your sakes. What are you saying? God has brought difficulty and deprivation in my life so that you could. I'm experiencing less so that you can have more. We are motivated by the fact that the Lord delivers us. We are motivated by the fact that God is going to bring us back to life. We are motivated by the fact, listen carefully, our lives have meaning and purpose and direction. 
the moment you live them for Jesus. The moment that you live them for someone other than yourself. My friend Joel Rosenberg has written a book entitled The Invested Life. And in this book, he talks about a mentor that he had named Koshi, who was from India. And he talks about this, this man from India who uh, was discipled by a guy named Bhat Singh. And Bhat Singh was like the Billy Graham of India. He was, had one of the most powerful lives and testimonies and ministries. And this guy invested in Koshi, and Koshi invested in Joel Rosenberg. And he began to understand that great men and women of God spend their lives giving to others what has been given to them. Grace, mercy, discipleship, encouragement. People who lose heart are people who find themselves invested in themselves. Those are the people who lose heart. The people who lose heart are the ones who are focused on themselves and preoccupied with themselves. They're focused on their loss, their circumstances, their pain, their drama, their indignity. People who lose heart are the ones whose attentions and affections are turned inward instead of outward. If you find yourself in a place of deprivation and isolation, do yourself a favor When Bob gets out of the hospital, go with him down to the Denver Rescue Mission. Go with him as he feeds the homeless down by the riverbank in Cherry Creek. If you really want a charge, go to India, go to Mexico, go on a short-term mission. Begin to ask and answer the question about what God wants you to do for others. Go to the Assisted Living Center. Go to the AIDS Hospice Center. Go somewhere that is unusual and maybe even uncomfortable. Who is it that you identify with it? Is it the very, very young? Is it the very, very old? I got to tell you something. I have a great privilege of doing a lot of wonderful things under a lot of wonderful venues, but nothing excites me more than playing with my grandchildren. There's nothing more energizing. There's nothing more cleansing. There's nothing more encouraging. Except for maybe preaching the gospel and seeing a person come to Christ. Seeing them turn from their sin. Watching them as they embrace Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I want you to think for a moment about the life that Paul describes in the book of Philippians. Some of you are going to be familiar with it. Go to Philippians chapter 2 just for a moment. I wasn't going to go there, but I think I am. In verse 11, it says, well, actually, in verse 3, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests. Know what Paul does. He doesn't say you need to eat, you need to sleep. There are legitimate interests that we have, but we're not to look out for our own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name Of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. And look. Not only is Paul motivated. (laughs) By the resurrection. He's also motivated by. 
the personal renewal that takes place day by day. Look at verse 16. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. I I want you to think about what you're reading. What happens? You begin the race. You start running the race. The race turns out to be longer than you expected. I was pretty certain that I would be dead by 17. So 16 was kind of, I thought, the end of my life. I thought, wow, I wonder if I'm going to live to see 17. And then all of a sudden 27 comes and then 37 comes and then, ooh, give me the willies, 47 comes. And God help us all, 57 comes. And if life continues at the pace that it's going, 67 is on its way. The road gets hard. The road gets long. The road narrows. The lanes are blocked. Have you ever been caught on I-70 when there was an accident or, or, or Highway 6 or Highway 25? There you are. You're on the road. You're surrounded by cars and you have no place to go. So you turn on the radio and start listening to me from 4 o'clock to 6 o'clock. No, this isn't an ad for my program. What happens, though, really when it gets hard? What happens when your husband says, I don't want to be married to you anymore? What happens when the diagnosis is cancer? What happens when you experience loss, deprivation, What happens when you don't get your first choice and you don't even get your second choice and you don't even get your third choice? Paul refuses to lose heart or embrace discouragement. Look at what he says. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Do you remember how the chapter started? In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, remember verse 1? Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. I have received the ministry of mercy. I'm not ready to give up. I've received the ministry of grace. I'm not ready to give up. I've received the mercy and the grace that's come from the resurrection from the dead. I'm not ready to give up. Paul doesn't want to fade in the final stretch of his life. You've heard the statement. When the going gets rough. Yeah. Those of you who are more mature. You probably had parents or grandparents who grew up in the depression. And they were amazed at the world that suddenly came upon them in their 60s and 70s and 80s as they witnessed a world so completely different from the world in which they grew up in. But they understood that when the going got rough, you picked up the pieces. You figured out a way to go forward instead of backward. When England faced a great challenge from Nazi Germany in World War II, it was Winston Churchill who said, quote, Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. The whole fury and might of the enemy must every soon be turned on us in the way that he would talk. Hitler knows that we will have to break us on this island or lose the war. Churchill said, let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth lasts for a thousand years, men will say this was the finest hour. Isn't that good? He says there's a moment that comes that defines who we are and the kind of people That we will be. And there comes a time that defines you and the kind of Christian that you'll be. And you will be a Christian who loves him and trusts him. Or you won't. 
you'll be a Christian who goes forward or you'll go backwards. You'll stay the course or you'll give up. What motivates you? Paul writes that the thing that motivated him was the debt that he owed. Remember at the beginning of of the chapter? Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, Paul understands that he shouldn't have been saved, but he was saved. He understood that as he was on the road to Damascus, getting ready to imprison, torture, and hopefully kill Christians, that Jesus showed up. Jesus saved him. Jesus appeared to him. Jesus washed him and cleansed him and gave him a ministry and an opportunity not to keep his mouth shut, but to speak. What motivates us? Why the debt that we owe? Have you received grace? Have you received mercy? Now, think about it for just a moment. The grace and the mercy that you received cost you nothing. But it costs God everything, everything that matters, everything that's important. Our debt to Jesus and the enormity of the challenge. This is what Paul is saying. My debt to Jesus and the enormity of the challenge keeps me from losing heart. That's what Paul is saying. The outer man is perishing. Boy, do I understand that passage. My hair has turned gray. Some of my worn and cracked molars have been removed. The tent flaps are starting to go. No, this is my real hair color. This is what it really looks like. I know some of us are turning gray and some of us are turning loose. The net result? The outer man is perishing. Michelangelo said, The more the marble waste, the the more the statue grows. And you start to feel the things being chipped away as God forms the features that are going to define who you are. We are told that in the course of our lifetime, every single cell in your body is going to be replaced, depending on how old you are, not just once. Not just twice, but several times. The body that you started out with isn't the one you end with. That's why for my birthday I've asked for uh, Botox. No, I'm just teasing. I, I actually don't want Botox at all. And so he says, the outward man is perishing, but the inward man is being renewed day by day. How is that possible? How is it that externally we're starting to come unraveled, but internally we grow, we mature, we become more and more like Jesus. And so we see our glimpse of eternal glory. It's what keeps us going. Look at verse 17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Here's what Paul does. He puts the suffering in its proper perspective. For our light affliction. And I know when you read Paul's words, when he says for our light affliction. You should be tempted to argue with Paul. Wait a minute, Paul, I I read the rest of the passages. Torture, beatings, imprisonment, beaten with rods, stoned and left for dead, being pelted, vilified, ostracized, a day in the night in the deep. That hardly sounds like light affliction. It sounds bitter and it sounds cruel. And some of you might be thinking exactly the same way. Well, Gino, you don't understand. You don't understand what it's like to go through a serious illness. Oh, you don't know what it's like for your spouse to be diagnosed with cancer. Oh, you don't know what it's like 
to lose this or to lose that. You don't know what it's like to grow up in poverty. You don't know what it's like to go, grow up in, in ignorance. You don't know what it's like to be imprisoned. You don't know what it's like to be tortured. You don't know what it's like to be beaten. You don't know what it's like to be imprisoned. You don't know what it's like to be pelted with stones. But Paul knows all of those things and more. And the explanation lies in the comparison. The eternal weight of glory. William MacDonald writes, Notice from this verse that afflictions in life bear fruit in heaven. Isn't that interesting? The afflictions in this life bear fruit in heaven. The hint includes lessons learned in this life brings reward in the next life. A few drops of bitterness and cruelty in this life yields oceans of grace and oceans of mercy and oceans of love. And there is a pyramid in this verse that Effie Marsh points out. Climbing that pyramid brings the weary climber to an unspeakable rest. When you climb to the top of the verse, look at the top. Glory. Next, weight of glory. Next, eternal weight of glory. Next, exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Next, far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And he invites you to climb up. To the top of the mountain. And begin to see. Even if it's just for a moment. What the future is going to be like. In heaven. In verse 18. While we do not look at the things which are seen. But at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal. What is Paul talking about when he says, what are the things that are seen? And I'm going to suggest to you that it's not restricted to the visible universe. But in fact, when he's talking about, but while we do not look at the things which are seen, he's not talking about the earth and the moon and the sky and the chair that you're sitting on. He's not talking about... The song that you're all familiar with. Let me tell you about the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees and the moon up above. He's not talking about physical, tangible, simply physiological reality. He's talking about the hardship. He's talking about the pain. He's talking about the trial. He's talking about the persecutions. He's talking about the sufferings. He's talking about the setbacks. There is a sense in which he's talking about the physical and the material universe. But these are all incidentals of ministry. The great object of his ministry is Jesus. The great object of his ministry is gospel. The great object of his ministry is the glory of Christ being a blessing to others. And the rewards that come to the faithful. To see the suffering is sight. To see the, the blessing is insight. That's what he's talking about. He invites you to focus on what matters. He invites you to focus on the things that aren't seen. Like Jesus. Like his throne. Like the future, like heaven, like faith, like hope, like love. What happens when you dream not about the world the way that it is, but the way that it could be? It was Robert F. Kennedy who made that quote famous. Remember, he said, some men see things as they are and ask why. I see things as they could be and ask, why not? It's a great quote. It's exactly, I think, what Paul is talking about. We are sometimes held captive in the present perspectives of what we see and experience. We're only slightly aware of what the future holds. 
Earlier this week, I had, <laughs> of all people, Alistair McGrath on my program. He's the professor at Oxford, and he's just written the definitive uh, biography on C.S. Lewis. When I was a younger man, I read everything that C.S. Lewis wrote shortly after I became a Christian. He wrote an essay called The Weight of Glory. And in it, he, he has this curious paragraph. He writes, quote, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of those destinations. It is the light in light of those overwhelming possibilities. It is with awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. And then he, he says this sentence, there are no ordinary people, unquote. Francis Schaeffer picked up that line, there are no ordinary people, and he wrote a book about it, talking about the future that is in store for every Christian. The point being, every single man and every single woman who has come to know Jesus as their Lord and their Savior is going to be brought into an eternal future and they will live forever. And so will you. And the point that Lewis is making is the point that Paul is making in the passage. And that is you should be careful how you treat one another. Based on who you're going to be. In the not too distant future. Do you ever wonder what it would be like to go back to 1979 and befriend Bill Gates? And just say, you know, before you're like the full on multi-billion billion, before you become the richest human being on the planet, on the earth. Can I just loan you some money? Can I be your friend? Can I take you to Starbucks? Oh, wait, Starbucks doesn't exist quite yet. Can you imagine when you begin to think about. Who he's going to become. What if you had that attitude about every single person that you met? You looked at them and with a sense of awe and amazement, you begin to think that they might become, if not the most important person in the universe, maybe the second most important person in the universe. Lewis again, he writes, quote, you will have never talked to a mere mortal nations, cultures, arts, civilization. These are mortal and their life is to ours like that of a gnat. But it is immortals we joke with, we work with. We marry, we snub, we exploit Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. You probably heard the expression. There's nothing worse than a quitter. But there is something worse. My grandpa would say, there's nothing worse than a quitter. And my granny would say, well... The man who's worse than a quitter is the man who's afraid to begin. And Grandpa and I were convinced that Grandma was right. There is something worse than a quitter. It's the person who never starts. It's the person who never enters into the life of faith, who never enters into the adventure of faith, who never enters into... The incredible journey that it means to know and to love and to serve Jesus. There are people who will never, ever, ever give Jesus a chance. I hope that's not you. The greater danger for most of us 
is not that our aim is too high and we miss it, but that it's too low and we reach it. If the only thing that you get is what you want, then you might not be thinking large enough. You might not be thinking bright enough. You might not be thinking in a way that's going to honor God and glorify Jesus. But just remember that affliction and persecution and pain and sorrow might be the mechanism that God has ordained so that you can have a direct deposit in heaven as your bank account continues to grow there. But if you're motivated for all of the right reasons, then it could very well be that like Paul, instead of discouragement and depression, you'll experience joy and hope about the future. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, when we consider all (laughs) that Paul is reminding us of, that, Lord, we can experience your grace and your mercy. That, Lord, we have every reason not to give up, but that we have every reason to keep going. Your presence, Lord, your power, a willingness to die to ourselves and live for others. The spirit of faith, the hope of the resurrection, meeting the needs of others, your glory. The fact that even though on the outside things are wasting away, on the inside things are growing, maturing, stabilizing. Lord, we thank you and we praise you that the future eternal hope of glory can keep us committed. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that we would go up instead of down. That we would go forward instead of backward. And that we would persevere instead of quit. And again, Father, we thank you that it's your grace and your mercy that really sustains us. That is the reservoir. It gives us hope. Lord, love is often unseen. And faith is often unnoticed. And love, difficult to measure. But Lord, we pray that we would focus on what is seen in the Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.